Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Cool. Yeah, we, we are up and going. We are on record. Ella Bruce from Australia. Where in Australia are you, by the way? So I'm currently in Canberra, the, the capital. Canberra is <laughs> I've never been to Australia. I used to live in New Zealand for a, for, for a while. You know, I was playing rugby down there. I never I, yeah. I got to get out of Australia because there's too much wackiness going on down there with the wacko vegans. And you guys got so much damn good meat down there. So, Well, uh, I mean, the funny thing is, I think you guys, um, everyone talks about, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished. I think, like, uh, all meat in Australia is grass-fed and grass-finished. We pay extra to have it fed grain. Yeah, that's how it was in New Zealand when I was there last winter too. It seemed like it was it was hard to find anything but grass fed. So yeah, it's pretty much that there, and, and, and there is there is some great finishing going on, but it's it's certainly still the minority, unlike where it is in the U.S., where we have most of our most of our animals are ruminants on grain. Even even the sheep here, some of the sheep go on grain too, which is kind of interesting. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little your your background real quick. So, um, okay, well, as a bit of a background, I, I actually grew up being really obese um, and dropped a whole bunch of weight following a keto approach, like really, really um, low-carb, high-fat keto. <clears throat> um, that probably would have been like 1920. And through the process, I actually developed a bit of an eating disorder. Um, so over the years, I ended up kind of learning to embrace my body a little bit differently by getting into bodybuilding, you know, trying to celebrate my body for what it could do versus, you know, trying to make it as thin as possible from the eating disorder background. Um, so I'd kind of been like playing around in that space for a number of years, both as a coach and also just working in the army. And uh, one of my clients, probably about a year and a half, two years ago now, actually, it was like, hey, have you um, you heard of this crazy wacko named Sean Baker? I heard him uh, recently doing talking to somebody about the carnivore diet. I'm like, this is stupid. What are you talking about? This is like, no way this is actually going to be beneficial. But um, I was actually really curious. You know, it's one of those things where um, like once an idea gets into your head, it kind of like captures your imagination. So I went ahead and tried it. And I noticed that my body composition had rapidly improved pretty quickly. Um, and it's kind of just been testing and adjusting ever since, you know, trying to work out what works best for my body, kind of in, in investigating, um, how best to optimize, I guess it bringing a carnivore into like the bodybuilding world, which is kind of like more my background. I, I should be taking like a, like tabs or notes on how many guests we've had on here that start out by saying that they thought Sean was crazy and then... <laughs> 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 well especially I, I, don't, I don't sorry go yeah i was gonna say i'm not even sure if joe's i don't know if joe yorogan has come around yet to think i'm not crazy <laughs> I that, but, uh, yeah he, he still he still messaged me all the time it's kind of funny so i think he's coming around to think i'm not not as crazy as i might yeah. have first appeared to, to first so, we've got more um, data now but yeah 
One of the things that really uh, made it difficult getting into carnival for me was that there was so much, um, I suppose, dogmatism around, you know, the approaches to carnival. And even now we still see it a couple of years on when, you know, people are forming like these really, really intense tribal camps. You know what I mean? Like you're not carnivore unless you're grass fed, grass finished, organic meat, or, you know, you're not carnivore unless you're nose to tail, or, you know, you had a pickle three months ago, therefore you're not, you're not carnivore anymore. You know, like these, these silly rules. Um, and I kind of found um, that kind of elitism almost really off-putting from a, a, an evidence-based practice perspective, because from one hand, I can see like there's a lot of benefits I'm getting out of this, but the community that I'm, I'm taking part of now tends to shy away from, from that kind of thing. And I, it took me a while to kind of reconcile how to use things like certain carbohydrates strategically within a diet to achieve like a body composition or a performance improvement as a tool within like a carnival concept, you know, and even now I still kind of get some people like, well, you know, you you sometimes supplement with carbohydrate for performance, therefore you're not really carnivore. And I, I find that, um, I find that a little bit uh, difficult, I suppose, to, to try and get message across to people sometimes. Yeah, and I, I can certainly uh, sympathize with, with that because I, I do it myself, even though I'm known as the carnivore guy and, and generally I just eat meat and, and, and certainly it works well for me and I think it works well for uh, a lot of people. And, you know, I just, you know, on my YouTube channel, I made a video about carnivore zealots about that very same topic. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, whereas there's many people in the low carb community or the keto community, even the carnivore community think that all carbs are evil and carbohydrates are bad. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't see anything inherently wrong with a glucose molecule. I think mm -hmm. it is something that we make endogenously, whether we want to or not. So it is part of our physiology, just like cholesterol is and everything else that we say is, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, good. But what I will say is that, uh, you know, for, for some people with disease X, Y, or Z, you know, certain, almost any plant food can cause problems. So for those particular people, um, they, they really have to be strict about avoiding carbohydrates. And, you know, the way I've defined a carnivore diet is basically you're focusing on animal, you get your nutrition from animal food. That's where your structure, your hormones, you know, your protein is designed to come from. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, you, you might have some wiggle room with, with some other foods. And, and the problem is it's not the carbohydrate necessarily Although there are some people that are, you know, struggle with glucose metabolism where that's a problem. But for an athletic, healthy, fit person, it may be what what's with the carbohydrate. It's not the it's not the you know it's not the yeah, CHO. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 maybe it's an oxalate, maybe it's a maybe it's a it's a you know a goitrogen or a glycoalkaloid or something like that that's in there that may be problematic or causing gut disruption. But if you can find something that is carbohydrate based and it doesn't seem to have any negative reactions mm -hmm. to you, you know, don't be dogmatic about it. Use it if, if, if there's an advantage, you know, I've, I've done, you know, the car backloading. I mean, I did all this stuff. I mean, I've been doing yeah. I've been this for 40 years and I, when I was on my ketogenic journey, I, I tried targeted keto, cyclic keto, carb backloading, carb night. I did all of those things. And I personally, personally did not find enough of a benefit to offset the negative that I got, you know, and, and, and was it, you know, was it digestive issues? Was it my, my, my aches and pains from being a 50 year old athlete? Mm -hmm. I'd have a little back pain or elbow pain or shoulder pain. That wasn't worth it to me in, in the grand scheme of thing. And for me, I wanted to say I would prefer just to feel good all the time so I can train as hard as I want to. And maybe there's a 5% performance decrease on every any given workout, but the cumulative effect over time for me 
is ultimately better performance. And you know, like I mm -hmm. said, I, I would say my performance as a 50 year old is, is pretty darn good, but that's everybody's different. So let's talk a little bit about my, about your, your stuff. So you are, um, and this is another interesting dichotomy. It's not only among, do I eat, you know, do I eat a couple sweet potatoes here and there or something like that with a, as an athlete? It is how much protein do I eat? Should I eat a high protein diet or should I eat a high fat diet? And I, and I've honestly seen people thrive on both. Mm -hmm. And I try to, and I, I try to say, you know, like, look, let's figure it out. I think there's some, I think there's, there's certain types that probably will do better one way or the other, but that's still to be determined for sure. But let's, let's just talk about your experience. Okay, for sure. So, I mean, first of all, I'll never tell anyone whose diet is working for them that they're doing it wrong. So if you're following a high fat carnivore diet and you're getting great results, you know, don't change it. If the, if the system isn't broken, don't, don't mess with it. That said, personally, I've had much better results um, purely from a body composition perspective. And I'll talk about some subjective feeling um, experiences in a second from a low fat approach. So um, predominantly like 95, 97% lean beef in realistically unlimited quantities, you know, true ad lib. Um, very recently I'd got down to sub 14% body fat uh, without counting calories. And I did three cardio sessions the entire time to do it um, carnivorously just by restricting my, my fat intake. Um, so, you know, I don't see a lot of people who are following a high fat approach, getting down to those levels of body fat um, without counting, without doing lots of cardio, without doing other restriction methods. That said, it's totally achievable realistically on any diet. I personally just find a lower fat approach to be much more sustainable. Um, and actually, to be honest, it was the easiest cut I've ever done. So, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, I think, <laughs> In terms of subjective experience, I'm actually actively trying to put on fat at the moment. Um, and I'm doing that through a higher fat carnivore approach. And I have put on fat. Um, it's not quite as much as I thought I would, which is interesting. It's actually a lot slower than I thought I would put on fat. So that's, that's been an interesting experience. But um, what I will say is that my energy, my mood um, is a lot more stable. Um, my sleep is a lot better. Um, I seem to have plateaued at around about 18, 19% body fat, despite the fact that I'm eating as much fatty meat as I can possibly fit in, which is interesting, you know, it kind of indicates that there is like maybe, um, settling points, if you will, you know, when I was eating really lean, I kind of settled around about the 14, 15% body fat, which is, I think male equivalent about eight or nine versus eating almost one-to-one -one or a little bit higher protein to fat ratio. I'm kind of settling around the 19%. So certainly still healthy. Uh, still lean by, I'd say, modern agricultural standards, just fatter compared to where I would consider myself within, like, the bodybuilding demographic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, and that's, that's my, that echoes my experience. You know, if, if I know if I want to get lean, and, and there's not really reason that I want to get lean other than pure vanity. I mean, you know, it doesn't help my performance, you know, significantly, mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And again, bodybuilding is not about it's, it's about a look. It's about an aesthetic. It's not so much about a performance. You're not going to be your strongest when you're at your leanest. I mean, it just doesn't, mm -hmm. it just doesn't go that way. And, and, and honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you would say, you know, I, I, you don't feel your best at super lean levels of body fat and that's not human, normal human physiology. It's, it's really a, an artificial state that we have that's, that's kind of directed by sports and some of this stuff. And so what you're seeing now, which I think is an interesting statement is say you're eating, you know, fatty, fatty meat, you know, you're eating a one-to-one -one or whatever and you're struggling to put on body fat beyond a certain point. And I think you're probably 
still very well muscled and, and what I would say a very uh, well-functioning, well-appearing human being uh, and eating basically to, to, to satiety. And I think if we were to look, if we were to go back, I mean, obviously I'm speculating, but I think if we were to go back a hundred thousand years and look at an, an, an average uh, Paleolithic Cro-Magnon or, or some other mm -hmm. human eating a natural diet, which is probably my, my argument would be mostly meat. Um, they would probably be similar with, with regards to body fat and probably decent muscle. And depending on how much, you know, they're not lifting weights or just living, you know, maybe, maybe they, maybe they did, maybe they threw some stuff and threw ride rock throwing contests. Who knows? They might've, they got bored. I mean, there wasn't much else to do besides hunt and hang around. So maybe they're throwing <laughs> how fast they can yeah. run to the next tree. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they, they still wanted to be, I'm sure they still wanted to be entertained. So um, it's interesting though, because uh you know, that's where I think that the, the interesting point is, you know, because there's people that will say, you know, the, the converse people will say fat is so satiated. And, and I wonder, you know, when you say you're eating unlimited um, protein, you know, lean, you know, 97% or whatever, did you know how much you were eating from a caloric standpoint? Were you eating like a lot of calories relative to what you're eating before or now, or how did that go for you? So I'm eating about the same quantity in terms of weight of food per day. Um, which is what, by the way, just for curiosity? Uh, it's about four and a half to five pounds of, of meat a day. Yeah, listen, that's shocking, isn't it? That's what I eat. And you're, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you are a, a you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know what you weigh, but I, I guarantee I weigh more than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm certain you do. So I'm, um, I'm 5'10 and I weigh about 77, 78 kilos. So. Yeah, so I'm about 110 kilos. So I got you by 40 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> you, put a, you put a pound or two on me. So, I mean, that would shock a lot of people that there's, there's a, there's a gal, you know, I hope you don't mind calling you a gal, but there's, there's okay. a female in Australia that's, you know, not, not, I mean, not small, but not a giant person is putting down five pounds of meat a day and maintaining body weight. I mean, that would be even, even to, you know, this is a thing that's interesting. We had Jose Antonio on here, you know, mm -hmm. Jose, his work, he's done some of the protein overfeeding studies and he said he had a guy. I that, love Jose. I, I can quote whole sections of his research. Yeah. Right. So he was, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, I can remember Zach, I remember he had, he had a guy on there and he was saying, man, the dude would eat five, six, seven, 800 grams of protein a day. And it didn't matter. He mm -hmm. wouldn't want any more fat or anything. And, he, and, it, and conversely, he would take it away and he'd be the same. So it's, mm -hmm. there's something a little bit more going on with, with, with caloric, yeah. but, and particularly protein is that, that interesting lever where you can almost eat it. And some people, it seems like you can eat it ad lib without really any negative consequence. So I really want to touch on this subject because I've been playing around with this with myself and a couple of clients for a while now. So based out of the work that came out of Jose uh, Antonio work from particularly the, what the study where he looked at the 4.4 grams per kilogram. Um, so the, the highest one that he did in the protein overfeeding. Um, I started to try and like continually up my protein intake to see how high I could actually get before I started having you know, negative responses, whatever that would be. So I was terming these like protein overfeeding days, which um, what I was doing was, was having one protein overfeeding day. And then I was like going back to a baseline for about six days in a row. And the reason I did that is I wanted to assess how my body composition, my mood, my energy, everything changed after that, that change. <clears throat> so I got up to eating about 650, 700 grams of protein in a day and about less than 50 or 60 grams of fat, which if you want to do the math, that's a lot of egg whites. Okay. I was going to wonder where, you, where the source was from, if it was from <clears throat> protein powder or if it was all from purely from food. So, so uh, yeah, I, I mean that you can't really get that high without including some protein powder, but I don't really handle dairy very well. So I try to stay away, away from it if I can. But, um, <clears throat> 
what I, what I tend to found is that no matter how much I ate and I was eating well past satiety, I never gained body fat. Um, I'd get really sweaty, really, really hot. I kind of feel like a, a coiled spring. Like I just could not sit still. So I'd go out and like, I'd do my training session, um, maybe break a PR, do something, go out this this giant, um, protein meal and by about midday <clears throat> I needed to train again or I needed to go for a run or I needed to do something <clears throat> because I just couldn't sit still anymore so you know I think that's kind of like that thermic effect the neat uh, non-exercise adaptive thermogenesis component of protein really starting to come out um I would get like kind of weird crampings and as much as it's kind of gross to talk about <clears throat> you know, my my weenie smelt really really bad but you know that doesn't shouldn't surprise anyone you know the amount of urea that was probably coming out of it what was really interesting is that I didn't really have any negative health effects come out of it. You know, so people talk about um, protein poisoning or they want to talk about um, rabbit starvation and all of these kind of things. And like, honestly, pushing that boundary, I never saw any negatives come out of it, apart from the fact that it was just really expensive. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because you know, what you described is essentially what people joke around with. They'll say like, well, I got the meat sweats because they went to like a Brazilian buffet or something <laughs> like that. And yeah. maybe they need to re reanalyze that and call it the protein sweats because it sounds like that's kind of what you had going on there. 100%. Yeah. Did, did you, so I'm kind of interested in that. Were, and you touched on it a little bit, but like, were you, were you tracking uh, like calorie intake when you were doing the high protein versus the higher fat or the added fat maybe in terms of gaining weight. And if you mm -hmm. were, when you added the fat back and then finally plateaued, did you notice anything that would maybe be interesting in terms of like how we understand like uh, this concept of calories in calories out or uh, what, what your metabolism, maybe, maybe the way to say it is the calorie out component is this kind of a, like a more of a less of a linear thing and more of an exponential thing as you kind of add on a little bit of weight and your body kind of responds to what you're giving it from a, from a food quantity standpoint? Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm still eating about the two kilos a day. Uh, when I went from eating, you know, 97% beef, I was probably eating about 23, 2400 calories a day, um, which is about three to 400 calories less than my maintenance. So I've got about a 27 to 2800 maintenance normally. Um, at the moment, I'm probably eating three and a half, maybe a little bit more, maybe 4,000 calories a day, predominantly from like beef ribs, chicken wings. Uh, the leanest thing I'll eat is chicken thighs with the skin. So uh, like <clears throat> from my perspective, that's quite fatty compared to where I was normally eating. Um, <clears throat> so I'm probably sitting around like the 4,000 calories a day at the moment. Um, at first, I gained weight really, really rapidly. So I lost sight of my abs pretty quick. But even now, I'm, I'm not making any more changes. Um, in terms of body compositional changes, um, people talk a lot about, you know, the amount of protein in a food leading towards lean body mass gains. And I think if you're coming from a protein-restricted standpoint, that's certainly true. But what I've noticed going from high-protein, low-fat to high-protein, high-fat is that uh, I've actually had this really, really rapid gain in strength and, um, and actually musculature. So, uh, like for example, yesterday I squatted 140 kilos for two reps, which is a bit over twice my body weight. Um, we, <laughs> I'm adding like five kilos onto my squat every week and have been since I started this. So like from an, for an advanced lifter, Sean, Sean and no, like that's actually an incredible result. Um, 
doesn't sound like much, but it's actually pretty big. So I actually don't know 100% what's going on under the hood just yet, but it's certainly opening my mind towards maybe there are, there's more going under the hood than what I thought there was, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like if anything, it just like, if you, and I, mean, I think most people who are going to be kind of going on the journey, you are playing around with this stuff. They're coming from the other end, right? Like mm-hmm. you're super lean bodybuilding type stuff. And, and you're, you're looking to try to see what happens if you bring back fat and try to add weight. Whereas a lot of people that we're seeing from an anecdotal standpoint is, you know, it's a lot, some of them have hundred plus pounds, you know, to lose. So, you know, it, it makes it really intriguing when, when you think of like, if you get just a little bit past what your body maybe feels is neutral or kind of comfortable intuitively and you're struggling and you're eating past satiety and you're still seeing that plateau, it kind of makes sense as to why someone who is maybe a hundred plus pounds overweight, if they start kind of following an intuitive eating style within the parameters, kind of what you're doing, they should see that weight just start flying off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of use, um, I think about it in terms of like a rubber band analogy, you know, so if you're eating high fat, for me, I'm kind of selling around that 18, 19% body fat range, you know, so if I was starting at, you know, 30, 35%, I'd say that there is like the rubber band is quite stretched. I'm, a, I'm actually a fair distance away from that settling point. So the rate of fat loss would actually be quite, quite rapid initially, mm-hmm. but as I get closer and closer and closer to that 18 to 19%, maybe that's saying 20, 21 the the draw for my body to continue to keep dropping is a lot less. Does that make sense? And I'm probably mm-hmm. more likely to start floating around like the, the 20, 21% rather than continuing to nudge down to the 18 because I'm coming in from the other side, you know, I've, there was that rapid change as I upped the fats and as I'm getting, getting closer and closer to that settling point, the rate of change is dropping off really rapidly, getting to the point now where it's actually not, it's not moving at all despite the fact that I actually wanted to keep moving. So, um, I think that's kind of what you're seeing here. And it kind of applies as well when people are going, you know, really, really low fat, you know, so you're sitting around that 18, 19, 20%, you know, or a, you know, 15% equivalent for a male, you drop your fat right down and people will drop maybe down to 12 or 13 as they're getting close to that second settling point. But even eating ad lib, they won't really get like that ripped hard abs or anything else like that, because like the draw for their body to keep moving them down is less. You know what I mean? And, and it comes to a certain point where you need to start using some tools to try and push your body into that, that lower, lower range where eating, you know, just super high protein isn't cutting it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Cause like the bodybuilding community, I think what, what they're doing and you know, they're going to, you're going to get a range of different opinions as to whether people think that people should be doing that. Or, you know, you, you, nowadays everyone has got a problem with everything at some point, but um <laughs> You know, the funny, the interesting thing I think about that community is they're kind of giving us like, like this huge pool of anecdotes and this huge pool of like, well, this is what tends to work better for, you know, the masses, or this is what can work. And they're kind of developing almost on accident, like, like these anecdotal tools that people can play around with uh, when it comes to either weight loss or physique optimization or strength optimization and that sort of thing. And, um, it is really interesting to kind of see like what, what strategies have worked and which ones have been harder to kind of adapt. So like, have you noticed given that you saw such an ease of it where, you know, most people are going to tell horror stories about that six to eight weeks that they have to cut Mm -hmm. down to show. And you said like, 
the the high protein route was by far the most uh, sustainable way to kind of go about it. Are you seeing that kind of catch on? I mean, I guess high protein's kind of been around from the bodybuilding community to a degree, but maybe high protein through a whole wholer food like carnivorous type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. So people who tend to be drawn to a ketogenic diet in the beginning, generally speaking, kind of have like these like disestablishment kind of views. Like if you think about it, you know, these people have been wanting to lose weight for decades, you know, been following a food pyramid, it never worked, you know, gone to a dietitian, they gave shit advice and they got worse or they dropped a couple of kilos and they got fatter. You know, so people are kind of disen- disenfranchised, I suppose. So what ends up happening is that it creates this like mistrust within um, the keto community versus like every other piece of advice, if that, that makes sense so far. They kind of like, no, you know, you're lying to me or there's big pharma or the, the sugar is trying to do all these things. Um, in terms of whether or not uh, the, the high protein approach is, um, is, you know, having a larger uptake, I think it is, but we still have like that um, resistance against like the established norm, I think within like the ketogenic community, that kind of makes them say, you know, no, no, no. Um, that's what they, they think is best. But, you know, the, the truth is it's actually high fat or that insulin is evil and it will kill you or, you know, all of these kind of things. And unfortunately, the truth is normally in the middle. You know what I mean? Like extremes never tend to be the truth. So I do see an increase in it. I just sometimes think that the ketogenic community in itself is resistant to taking in... Um, taking in whatever the most efficacy advice is based on the fact that it had been lied to so many times in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. I want to ask you, cause you, you made this comment that it was the easiest cut you ever did. And I think that's because, because you have a lot of people that have done, you know, bodybuilding contests and uh, you've done whatever, 10, 15 contests. And they always know that the last, you know, month of their life is going to be awful and no one wants to be around them and they're miserable. Why would you, why did you say this is the easiest? What, what was the difference as far as, I mean, what were the, what were the positives or the less negatives that you experienced? Mm-hmm. So I had uh, less hunger, um, less moodiness. I didn't lose my menses or period. Um, <clears throat> the sleeplessness was a lot, lot, um, lot more reduced. Like obviously you're going to lose some sleep and a sleep deficit just because of the adrenals in your body. Uh, trying to mobilize the fats, but it was lower than what I'd experienced previously. Um, I didn't get the whole uh, cold body experience that I'd had on previous diets, possibly because of um, the amount of protein that I was eating, you know, keeping me warm. But normally I'd kind of feel like really cold, lethargic. I didn't want to do anything versus uh, this approach. When I was eating lots of protein, I actually felt the opposite. I was really energetic. You know, I wanted to park on the the furthest away from the shopping center and take the long walk rather than parking as close as I could, or I wanted to take the stairs, you know, so little things like that um, were a lot better in terms of training. I maintained my strength a lot better. Um, My recovery between workouts was actually a little bit lower than what I would have had if I was following more of a a carb based approach. I think that shouldn't surprise anyone, you know, as calorie restricted and I wasn't getting a glycogen source. So, of course, that was going to be a negative. But overall, like, my absolute power um, stayed about the same. So that was, that was really good. Um, but the biggest part of it was that the rate of fat loss was the best I've ever experienced. So um, I was expecting the cut to take me about 12 weeks, and it took about seven. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely an advantage. Um, you know, I do know, you know, we had Don Lehman on the show a while back. I don't know if you heard the episode. And we did talk a little bit about glycogen with protein. And we do know that at least with, with regard to animal studies, looking at liver glycogen, you know, we do see a restoration of liver glycogen overnight with high enough protein. So mm -hmm. muscle glycogen wasn't quite to where, where, where it would have been for, for certain workouts. But I don't know that we can say there's no glycogen restoration because I think it does occur. Um, I want to ask you, you know, you – so when you're saying high protein, now a, a traditional bodybuilding cut is still, you're still getting a lot of protein. And, and I mean, I assume you're doing red meat as opposed to maybe in the years past, you might've done chicken or tuna yeah, or correct. tell me about the different source of protein. Do you think that makes a difference? Because I, I, I uniquely feel better on what I'm looking at behind me, red meat, <laughs> compared to, yeah. you know, somebody gives me chicken. I'm like, you know, it's kind of like salad to me at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly do feel better with red meat. Um, in terms of like subjective feeling, I feel best probably with beef followed by lamb. Pork tends to be um, a bit of a if I can eat and eat any pork, it doesn't really tend to satiate me, depend regardless of how fat it is. And I find chicken like I eat chicken and I'm hungry again. Um, so I, I do tend to find that um, that. In the cut, there did come a certain point where I was eating almost exclusively uh, fish on the last few weeks uh, and supplementing with fish oil. And that was just literally because I had to get the fat down to stupid levels low, um, just to like get that last little bit off of me. Um, that, was a, that was a sad week and a half, two weeks. But, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you get used to those higher levels of fat, high levels of iron, all the nutrients that come in through beef. And you kind of like, that becomes your baseline. You know, that feels so good to you when you first start this kind of approach. And when you take that away by moving to something like fish or chicken or, you know, shrimp or prawns, whatever you guys call it, you do actually really feel like that stark difference just in, in mood. Like, you know, for example, like I go out with a friend and uh, it could be anything, you know, um, someone walks in front of you and normally you're like, whatever. And you'd actually like physically like, it like, it would bug you in ways that like, you're like, hang on, this doesn't make any sense. And it, it, it's just so interesting how um, even this, eating the same amount of protein from lean beef can have like such a different um, psychological feel to eating the same protein source from something very, very low fat. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, we can look at carnitine, carnison, creatine, taurine, you know, zinc, uh, mm -hmm. heme iron. There's, there's different concentrations, different types of meat. And I, and I really think that, you know, having look and, and what you are saying is echoed by so many people that do this. They just say, you know, the red meat, the beef, the lamb is, is just so superior to anything. And I always get people asking me, can I do it on all chicken, all fish? And I say, I really haven't seen anybody do it successfully long term yet. I mean, yeah. maybe do, but it's generally a harder route to go. And I feel sorry for these folks. I get because I, I get a lot of people from India contacting me and, you know, cow eating cow ain't too too easy to do over there. You know, you might get shot. So, <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're looking for, you know, whatever they can they do it on chicken and eggs. And I'm like, man, you know, it's tough. Maybe see if you can snag a goat once in a while or something like that. Yeah. Um, when you, you know, the thing about your strength was interesting because I, you know, I, that's what I experienced. I, I saw, you know, and this is a guy who's been training for, mm -hmm. you know, 40 years and, and not just, I'm not a newbie. I'm not getting, you know, you know, you know, people go to the gym for the first time. They, everything gets faster and bigger and mm -hmm. stronger, but you do it, you know, you do it after, after 10 years. I mean, you know, getting, you a couple of pounds of muscle is a big achievement, but you know, you do it for 40 years. You don't, and, and you, when you get into your fifties, you don't expect your strength to go up. And, and that's what I saw, you know, just by switching to diet, I saw my deadlift numbers go up. You know, I was calculating wattage on the rowing machine and deadlift stuff. And it was about a 10% jump in mm -hmm. strength, which 
is very remarkable. And you think about what that is. And if you look at guys who are taking performance sensing drugs, I mean, that's cl almost close to what these guys are getting. They're getting 10, 15%. If you look at the powerlifting mm -hmm. records, you compare the drug free records versus, uh, you know, the, yep, the, the drugged up records and it's about a 15% difference. So, you know, that, that for me, that was a huge, that was one of the biggest differences I ever saw. Probably the only other thing that worked for me over the years was creatine where I did see, and there's a lot of data on there. So mm -hmm. creatine may be helpful, but creatine is in meat. So it's just like, you know, you're probably you're supplementing yeah. to right, just yeah. directly rather than actually supplementation. Right. Exactly. Um, you had a nice, I saw you on Twitter, you know, and you had a nice little series of tweets or graphs where you're looking at, this is how, you know, if you're at this level and you want to get to here, do this from protein to fat ratio. And I know, I know you've probably seen Ted Naiman's work and mm -hmm. Ted's got a book coming up or has, I think he's published. Yeah, it. I reviewed it just recently. Yeah. He said it to me, I haven't finished reading it yet, but I've got it. And Ted's <laughs> a good guy. And he's, he's yeah. definitely on the side of high protein. And I think there's definitely some utility for that. And I think many people do do well with that. But as you know, within the carnivore community, there is a little bit of dissension. There's people out there saying, what well, didn't work for me and therefore it's the wrong approach. And I, I say, well, you know, then try something else. Um, and I, I do find it interesting, you know, for you to say that, you know, I feel a little bit better with fat and, and I do too. I mean, I, I choose to be, uh, you know, at about, you know, 12, 13% body fat for me because I just feel better that way. And I, mm -hmm. I don't like restricting, uh, and I like fat and it makes the food taste better. And, and I think there are some benefits. So, um, This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Auto Wild Grill. Sean, you've made some good use of Auto Wild's grills. What has your experience been so far? Yeah, Zach, man, I use that thing for just about every steak I cook now. I've gotten so spoiled by it. You know, if I can't cook on that grill at home, I really find that I don't like the steaks as much. It's kind of funny. I've become a snob with the grill. I use it pretty much for everything. It's, you know, it's, it's super fast. I mean, it's, it's, it just puts that perfect sear on there. It makes the steaks taste a lot better, a lot juicier, a lot more flavorful. And so it is clearly my favorite way to make steaks at home. Awesome. No, that's great. And I think it, it looks like on their website too, that it's a pretty uh, space efficient unit. It doesn't take up as much room as a normal grill might. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty compact. It's solidly built. Great. Yeah. And it actually looks like it comes in a couple different features. You can get an auto light, which is fewer features, but is also a bit cheaper. At the moment, you can get a holiday discount where they're selling their grills for $200 off. And then also, if you throw in the promo code HPO, people can save another $100. So that's a total of $300 in savings. So head over to autogrills.com. That's O-T-T-O-G-R-I-L-L-S.com. Throw in the promo code HPO to get your discount. Order before 12:23 and get it in time for Christmas. All right, now back to the show. Talk to me about you know, what you think the benefits of fat are and how fat do you, and let's talk about, you know, how much you're eating because there's a difference between ketogenic, 80% of your calories are coming from fat and what I do, which is, you know, 60%, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. some one to one, 65%, something like that. All right. So, I mean, I'm eating about the one to one now and I'd consider this to be high fat carnivore, at least from um, my background. So, you know, one-to-one -one is about 70, 65, 70% calories coming from fat. Whereas previously I was probably getting calories around 65 to 70% from protein. So I've kind of like swapped those two ratios. Um, in terms of like physical performance, because again, you know, uh, I care about aesthetics, but aesthetics follow performance. You know, you, otherwise you just get someone who looks skinny fat. 
So I do think a lot about how do I maximize my performance in the, in the gym to be able to obviously grow and therefore, you know, look better. So in terms of physical performance, um, you know, there was that huge big jump uh, initially when I went from like a, a lower protein keto to like a high protein keto carnivore approach, you know, the recovery was better. And something you said before really struck me where you said that, you know, I might have like a 5% um, decrease on performance in any one workout, but your recovery is better. And that's actually really interesting because what that, what's that showing me is that while, you know, you might not be able to push as close to absolute physical performance in any one training session, your ability to recover and then repeat that training stimulus again sooner means that you're actually accumulating strength or accumulating, um, you know, pro progress within the gym room at a more frequent rate. And therefore you're actually progressing faster than if you'd actually had a carb approach, you know, and we can talk about, I actually want to come back and talk about carbs because I think there's a lot of things that people misunderstand about that. And I, I want to talk about how to use them as the tool, but it's really interesting that, you know, you've, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. Like if, if what you're doing is helping you recover faster from the training session and therefore repeat the training stimulus, of course you're going to get better results for it. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad you said that because like you may not know this, but like in the endurance, in the endurance training world, that's like exactly what you're trying to do. Uh, you know, a lot of times people get hung up, especially when they're kind of early on, they'll go and they'll, they'll watch someone who's very experienced do like this big workout and for them, relatively, that's a massive workout. And, you know, you'll see, you'll see folks doing like 20 by 400 uh, or they'll be doing like these like Herculean size VO2 max type workout sessions. And then just takes them like almost the remainder of the week to bounce back from that. Yeah. And then once they get their hands on like a real protocol or get in touch with a coach who kind of knows what they're doing, they start looking at that like, okay, so you did 20 relatively high quality 400 meter repeats but then it took you six, seven days to bounce back before you could go and do that workout again. Let's try doing eight, eight and eight in that same time window. If you're going to recover quicker and then we start looking at it from a, a wider scope, you mm -hmm. had more volume spent at that system of training than you did when you did that really, really big session. And Absolutely. I think that, yeah, that gets missed a lot of times. I think when we look at some of this, when we forget to look at the recovery side of the nutritional component, yeah, so, I mean, I, I love all parts of bodybuilding, including training, not just the nutrition side. You know, and I see a lot of people, um, that, like, if you ask the average trainee, like, how many weeks into your next deload? They'll be like, what? You know what I mean? Or you ask them, um, where are you in your periodization plan? Um, what is your current focus in terms of periodization? Are you working through um, accumulating volume? Are you currently working on accumulating um, maximum 1RM increases? Like, you know, how are you find, and most people can't answer these questions. And, you know, they're just going through, they're smashing themselves in the gym. <clears throat> and how often do you see people who are like, oh, I trained legs on Monday and it's like Friday and they're like, oh, I'm still sore. And it's like, well, <laughs> hang on a minute here. That actually tells me that you haven't got an intelligent leg training session. You know what I mean? You might be able to physically do that, that actual training session, but either um, your recovery is ill-timed Ill up, you're not eating enough food to be able to recover from that kind of volume, you're not accustomed to it, you know, and all of these different things that go through, you'd actually be better off doing something that's much less um, taxing in any one session, but the amount of work that you complete over a week is actually greater. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting, and it's funny to see how that stuff carries over from sport to sport to a degree. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think they're the same concepts. It's just, I mean, I said to you before, if you understand the how of something, the, sorry, if you understand the why of something, the how becomes really trivial. And, you know, I think our sports were very, very different. You know, I'm, I'm explosive sport. You know, if I'm working more than five reps, I count that as cardio. Versus, you you know, you're doing 100 miles and breaking records for it. So, <laughs> yeah, when, when you do, like, I'm curious now, like, kind of a slightly different angle, but uh, when you're periodizing from a bodybuilding or a strength building program, how are you actually, like, dividing things up? Because, like, when I periodize for endurance, it's more about, kind of look different phases of building within a system. So mm -hmm. I always try to work backwards and look at it as like, okay, I want to be as specifically fit to the race I'm doing. So that, that actually answers a lot of questions. Once you decide what race you're going to do, because if I'm going to do like a hundred miler out in the yeah. mountains or a hundred miler, like on a flat track or like a 5k, you know, there's so much differences there. So I'm going to structure things differently, but I'm always kind of working closer and closer to race specific workouts when I get closer to the race which just means I'm going to build volume up at something a little shorter or more intense, like VO2 max stuff a little bit earlier in the training plan. And then I might move to like an anaerobic threshold type of workout session, build volume in that context, then move on to maybe something a little more, uh, a little, a little, it's kind of backwards from what you'd see in a standard, like 5k, 10k protocol where you're kind of doing the longer, more base stuff a little earlier and moving into those shorter, faster interval sessions. But is that same kind of premise there for mm -hmm. strength and bodybuilding? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, um, I'm actually working on trying to increase um, my lower body strength and size. The reason being is just for whatever reason, I grow in my upper bo body a lot faster than my legs. So I'm, I'm doing a leg specific training program at the moment. <clears throat> uh, so what I did is I worked out um, what the relative increase that I wanted to do for my squat was. So I wanted to add in a total of 12.5% um, onto my total squat within three mesocycles. Right. So from there, what I did is I worked out what my calculated one RM would be. And I knew from that point, that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to squat that weight for one rep. From there, essentially, I then just, I tend to use like a, a three cycle approach. So I'll do a powerlifting phase where I'll um, try to accumulate um, the absolute maximum poundage on the bar that I can for a squat. So I'm increasing how much I can do in like the two to five rep range. Once I kind of hit um, my targeted uh, weight for that one, what I'll then go through is I'll do the volume accumulation phase. So I'll do the same amount of sets, but I'll actually use the same weight and I'll increase reps. So every week I'm trying to add one rep to it. And if I can't do it, I'll do a forced rep, so like a Meyer rep system, um, until I can hit my target reps unassisted um, without a spot. Once I've done that, I'll then go through a total work accumulation phase. So I am using the same amount of weight, same amount of reps, but now I increase the amount of sets that I do over about a six week period, just very, very strategically. Um, <clears throat> so that way by the end of that third cycle, I'm doing a new higher weight at a higher rep for more sets. I'll then take a deload and then I'll repeat the process. So overall that's about an 18 week cycle. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the, the deload week add to it because it's uh, that's kind of what I find works really well. And a mistake a lot of people make in endurance stuff is they'll get into a system and they'll just be like, oh, cool, I did this much this week, ever I got to do that or more the next. And then it kind of <laughs> becomes the macro version of that one big like 400 meter workout done too often or yeah. not too often, but in too many, too many repetitions at once. 
And it does make a huge difference when you can get someone to like let go of that after like two or three weeks of building to kind of let everything sink in and then come back stronger and kind of keep that micro stressing going. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Sean. Oh yeah. Hey, let me, let me just switch gears a little bit and I want to get back to carbohydrates. Cause I think that's, that, that is something that a lot of people want to hear yeah. about. Cause I, cause I get, cause I tell people, you know, this is what I say, you know, when I see all these uh, athletes that are trying to take a veganism, I say, man, that's stupid. as can be, it's stupid as can be. <laughs> you know, and I say, I say you, know, you know, well, I mean, I'm just honest. I mean, I say, Hey, get 70% of your calories at least from steak. And you know, some people maybe more, but, and then you can balance it out with the rest of the stuff. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, what was the reason you decided other than thinking this nutty guy on Joe Rogan uh, to try this? And did you notice any benefits outside of, because a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, like we have Sarah Thackeray on who is a world champion jiu-jitsu champ on mm -hmm. a car work. She did it because her guts were messed up and she was like, I want to fix my guts. Did you have any other sort of issues or have you noticed any benefits outside of strength training and bodybuilding that have been beneficial or has it been purely just athleticism? Like some people might have, joint issues or muscular pains or did you notice? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I kind of half glossed over it before, but, um, I suffered with an eating disorder since I dropped, um, about 70 or 80 pounds worth of fat in, as a teen. Um, pretty, and, and it's been in a few different forms. Originally I had a anorexia nervosa and then I went through and had bulimia and binge eating. And I developed the binge eating disorder, um, during, anorexia recovery because they were kind of like getting you to try to gain weight back on using things like <clears throat> muffins and like chocolates and things like that. And you, you know, I, I just changed one bad relationship with food for another. Um, and you know, bodybuilding really helped with that in a way, because it's like you're reclaiming um, your body, you know, you're, you're controlling food, but for something that's positive, you know, maybe it was better to be overly controlling in food to be healthy than be over controlling in food and, you know, look like a starved vegan. So, um, the problem is I never really escaped from, from that, that prison inside my own head. And, um, anyway, so I had this client who spoke about actually the video that you've done and, um, it really captured my imagination when I was doing some research on it because everyone was saying eat until full, you know, eat the meat that you can afford. There was no counting calories, you know, and from my background, you know, with an eating disorder and obsession with food, it was kind of like someone was throwing a, a rope to me. You know, it's like, it seemed like a way that I could escape the food obsession that I had. Um, so that was kind of like the initial draw for me. And like for people who do have a background with eating disorder, I can tell you for another one, I don't count calories. I don't portion control. I, I do a little bit when I'm cutting really lean, but for the most part, I don't. Um, I don't enforce fasting though if it happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't um and i'm still able to control my body composition without being obsessive about food i know that if i go out for for with my friends for a dinner or something like that i can order a steak anywhere you know or i can order a grilled chicken breast anywhere so um there are always options and you know kind of like having that safety net was a way of yeah, this is the most liberated I've ever felt from my eating disorder. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that's really kept me within it. Um, you know, sometimes I think maybe I might be able to push a little bit closer to my maximum genetic muscular potential if I was to start using things like um, <clears throat> loading up on carbohydrates or I might, you know, if I was using anabolics or if I was using other things like that. But I, I, I just, 
I keep thinking to myself, you know, if I go down that path, then all that's going to happen is those same demons that have been on my back for the last decade are only going to come back. And, you know, ultimately that's what's kept me within a carnivorous approach. You know, that's really interesting that you described it because I think of a lot of people just looked at kind of what you're doing on the surface. They would maybe say, okay, here's a person who had an eating disorder. Uh, now they're following a carnivorous way of life or like, you know, part of the carnivorous way of life. So clearly they still have that eating disorder. They just traded that in for some, you know, restrictive way of eating. And, you know, it's still there just manifesting a different way. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I can, I can understand that appeal or that thought process, but when you described it, it sounded like it was kind of a stepping stone for you to let go of the restrictive mentality that is, common within folks who have eating disorders from like a psychological approach where they're psychologically thinking I can control what I eat and that's actually what they're after. So they're controlling by saying I'm only gonna have this much or I'm going to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Whereas for you, when you switch to a more meat based approach, it kind of opened your mind to be able to eat as much as you felt you wanted to. And at times even past that when you were experimenting a little bit, which I could, I guess I could see that would be like, a good way to maybe break that psychological thought process of like restriction, always restriction. And like, you know, you hear horror stories where people just, they kind of continue down that and they restrict themselves down to like, you know, a few hundred calories a day. And it's just like a complete, a complete disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, I think people would use the phrase orthorexia to describe carnival, you know, the, um, Mm -hmm. unreasonable fear of, um, a particular food or food group based on it being good or bad or whatever else like that. And yeah, sure. You know what? I don't really have a valid counterpoint to say that I don't suffer from orthorexia. Maybe I do. But on the flip side, I'd say that there are two types of people in terms of restriction. There are moderators and there are abstainers. You know, in terms of moderation, sure, I could go ahead and I could have, you know, carbs or, you know, Nutella and other things like that. And I could moderate that. But by moderating, I'm fighting against my urge to eat. I'm constantly questioning myself, should I be having that much? Should I be eating this? Do I need it now? Should I wait? You know, I'm constantly questioning my own internal satiety cues. So for me, moderation is actually feeding into my eating disorder versus abstination. So I'm just staying away from from those food options. Yeah, okay, maybe I am being orthorexic, but I don't obsess over food. You know, I eat when I'm hungry and I know that if I get full, it's because I'm full. And if I'm actually hungry, it's because I'm actually hungry. So I think it's easy for someone to turn around and say that, you know, you should just go in and go ahead and go have a bowl of pasta. It's not going to kill you. It probably won't. But in terms of mental health, I know that it would be very deleterious. Like it'd be bad for me. So I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think maybe like, like, you know, I don't, I don't bring that up as a way to kind of put you into a, you know, into a negative thought process or anything like that. But I like, I think one of the reasons that you, you are an interesting guest is, uh, or are an interesting guest is that like, you kind of do have an open mind about playing around with some things. So mm-hmm. like that would, that would maybe fly in the face of any idea of like that, the orthorexia argument would be something that would be targeting you. Uh, Cause you're not on, you're not on Twitter or you're not out on the internet saying like, you know, don't touch something at all costs. You're kind of wanting to experiment with some of that stuff, which is actually ironically when we got, when we, I think we had a listener recommend that we, we have you on the show and that's when I started following you on Twitter. And like, as soon as I started following you on Twitter, you were, you had a, a thread that was talking about 
the carbohydrate reintroduction and what that actually does within the context of kind of a keto-esque style of, yeah, of yeah. eating. Um, and that's kind of what we want. I think we want to start talking about a little bit. And Sean, you had mentioned it as well. So maybe we jump into that now, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, cool. So um, there are realistically four things that I want to go through about when you should be using carbohydrates or like some considerations for someone. So as um, within context, this, this advice is for someone who is very lean um, and looking to either increase performance or wants to get to very lean um, positions. So this is not advice that's towards someone who is recovering as a diabetic, especially a type one. And it's not advice for someone who is in, you know, the 25 plus percent body fat of either gender looking to get down. Um, there is essentially before, so I can describe why I think they can be beneficial. There's realistically two like foundational concepts I think we need to go through. So the first is that there's actually a maximum rate of fat loss within the human body. Um, something not a lot of people actually know. So there was a study done called um, the maximum rate of energy transfer in the human in hyperphagia. What they did is they looked at um, body compositional data from the Keys et al. study and noted, we're looking at when people stopped losing body fat <clears throat> um, at a particular caloric in intake. And what they identified was that the, um, the amount of energy that your body fat can provide you is actually only 69 calories per, cal per kilogram of fat per day. Right? So about, you know, realistically 30 calories per, per pound. If you go beyond that, what ends up happening is your body takes energy stores from elsewhere in your body to meet the energy deficit. So that, that normally, um, uh, manifests in the way of lean body mass losses. So, you know, we, we see that when people take too steep of a deficit, you know, the rate of fat loss doesn't really increase. They just lose muscle, right? And this is actually the reason why. There's a limit to how quickly we can lose fat based on how much fat you have. Um, the second one is the, the two compartment energy model. So people who follow Ted Neiman would have seen it before where he's got a bucket of adipose tissue and a bucket of glycogen. Um, that's actually from a piece of research by a gentleman named Flat et al. from 1971. Um, and essentially, it just describes that we have two buckets of energy. So we have body fat and we have both liver and muscle glycogen, which we can access in, in different amounts. But as we spoke about before, how quickly we can access the uh, body fat that we have is actually rate limited. So as we have less of it, less of it, we can only access less and less of it at a time. And we can actually draw some really, really interesting conclusions out of this, right? So for example, if there is a maximum rate of fat loss, that means that there's only a maximum deficit that we can have per day. You know, and exceeding that deficit is only just going to um, result in worse body composition. If you're with me so far. Yeah. Um, so in particular with fasting as well, you know, we see a lot of people who have great success fasting at a higher body fat percentage, but as they get leaner and leaner and leaner, they have more and more trouble with it. Um, and it's not quite as effective anymore. Again, that actually makes a lot of sense now because it's like, well, uh, if fasting is really just a very steep caloric deficit, then, you know, if you're exceeding that, that def the, the rate of fat loss for a significant period of time, all that's happening is that, you know, you're starting to lose energy stores initially from liver glycogen and then eventually from muscle. And we can actually calculate how long you can fast for 
based on how lean you are. So if you're leaner, you know, after about 13 to 14% body fat, um, you actually can't fast anymore than about 16 hours because by that stage, you've actually depleted liver glycogen. If you're still following mm -hmm. me so far, there's a lot of little steps here. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with those two like bits of understanding, so maximum rate of fat loss and like the two energy systems that we've got, um, the four things I wanted to chat about of when you should use carbs, we've got a TKD, a CKD, whether or not you can use carbs to increase fat oxidation, which is one of the things that the thread that you were talking at, and um, use of carbs to actually control hunger. So I see a lot of people talking about using a TKD approach for um, within like a keto diet to increase performance. I think that has some benefits if you are very, very lean and you want to increase it. Um, if well, your training volume, sorry, what was that? Let me, let me inter just interject to say TKD is targeted ketogenic diet. So, we, so yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, sorry, a, a targeted ketogenic diet is when you take in a small measured amount of glucose directly before a training session. It's a hope that it would improve your training performance either in that session or in subsequent, subsequent sessions. Um, I think this has a bit of benefit to some people. So if you are doing a high volume training phase and you're burning through a lot of, lot of muscle glycogen very frequently, um, and Zach, you would have seen this with your own training. Um, if you're burning through those glycogen stores, there's only so, um, so much glycogen that your liver can create within a 24 hour period. And if you're consistently burning through more than what your liver can create, you'll read this point where you hit a wall. You know, you don't have enough glycogen to support your, your training load anymore. And so supplementing, you know, small amounts of glycogen uh, strategically before a training session can kind of like help you recover just that tiny little touch more and get you back over that line again, if that, that makes sense. Like, and does that mm -hmm. um, reflect your experiences as well? Yeah, you know, well, when I saw the thread you put out there, one of the reasons why I was so interested in it is it was probably the first description I've seen that actually kind of mapped what my own experience was in a way that I could kind of wrap my head around that mm -hmm. made sense. Because one thing I've always had a, I wouldn't say a hard time, but more of a, like a curious thought around is, you know, someone will ask me like, well, okay, so you're quote unquote fat adapter. Do you follow a high fat, low carb why even reintroduce carbohydrates at all mm -hmm. when you're doing some of these, especially some of these really like I can explain why I would for something like a 10 K or a, a marathon training program where you're like heaps of volume plus frequency of intensity and all that other stuff. But like for say something that's a hundred miler or further where like, you know, I might be averaging around like 65, 70% my VO two max you know, the argument could be made like, well, why even bother with carbohydrates at that point? If you're fat adapted enough, you shouldn't need them. And I'm like, well, the reason I do it is because I feel like I perform better when I do it. And really that's my compass with anything I'm doing nutritionally. Yeah. And what you described though, makes so much sense because it, you know, when I'm at a race like that, I'm at my leanest state. So I'm at that point where like, you know, I've probably minimized to a degree how much uh, you know, fat I can utilize in a given time period versus if I were like twice as fat from a body fat standpoint. Um, and then the other way I think it's really interesting is when you look at overall energy demand. So mm -hmm. if I take in say 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour during a hundred mile race that I'm doing in, you know, around 12 hours or less than 12 hours, if you look at my energy 
my energy deficit for that day, I'm probably up into like, you know, around the 12,000 calorie range to be able to do that. And when I'm eating 40 grams of carbohydrate an hour, you know, that plus like muscle glycogen and liver glycogen, I'm probably somewhere between two to 3000 calories of that source. Mm -hmm. So I'm still at a very low carbohydrate utilization standpoint. When you look at overall energy balance, I guess is the way. Um, I mean, if we look at like the FASTA study that came through, mm-hmm. had like those fat adapted athletes doing endurance. Um, and in particular, there was one athlete, um, and I think you'll find this fascinating, one athlete who was burning 1.98 grams of fat mm-hmm. per, uh, um, per minute of exercise. Now, for like those who don't know, that's actually an outrageously high. It's 100% the outlier on the textbooks before that study. Oh, like, that. 100%, like before that, I wouldn't, I mean, if I didn't see it on the paper, I wouldn't have believed it was real. Mm-hmm. Um, what the paper doesn't mention is that that athlete and a few different others were actually taking a supplement called Vespa. Mm-hmm. Um, now Vespa, you know, contains like royal jelly and a few different other little things, but it also contains honey. And what was really interesting, um, if you really, really dive into it, is that small amount of glucose that, that athlete was taking, who was fat adapted, I'll highlight that again, actually increased his fat oxidation. So having this small amount of carbohydrate you know, intuitively you should think, well, wouldn't that offset fat oxidation, you know, the Randall cycle, but in reality, it actually increased it. And what we're actually seeing here is that um, there is a rate limit to how many times you can go around the the citric acid cycle, you know, and when you're carb restricted, we have um, a a limited amount of oxaloacetate, predominantly due to a, um, a shortage of pyruvate from carbohydrates. So if you don't eat carbs, you don't have pyruvate, which means you have a shortage of oxaloacetate. Now your body can make that from protein, right? And it's called anaplerosis, but that is actually rate limited. You know, it's quite taxing on your liver to do it in any decent quantity rapidly. So what ends up happening is, is that you run into a wall. Like you just, you can't produce enough ATP to meet your energy demands, so you slow down. Mm-hmm. However, if you start supplementing with glucose, um, and I'm, I'm only talking really small amounts, you know, 10, 15 grams at a time, what we're actually seeing is, is that that's just enough. Uh, and I should actually mention particularly fructose because we wanted to go to liver specifically. Um, what we're actually seeing is it's providing just enough glucose to start producing more TCA intermediates, the, the oxaloacetate, all of a sudden, that enables the citric acid cycle to, to uh, turn a little bit faster, which means that we're, we can burn more fat within a time period, which means that your actual maximum work output, your ATP produced is increased. And that's what we're seeing that the increase in performance from, mm-hmm. from the carbs. Yeah, no, a few things. So I was actually part of the faster study. Um, yeah. I wasn't the guy who did 1.98. I think I was like 1.56 grams, which is about 50% higher than kind of the outliers mm-hmm. in previous studies. Um, you know, which is still all the, the whole fat, high fat branch of that. I think it ranged between like, if I remember it, like 1.3 grams to the, the guy who had 1.98 or basically two. So like that whole cohort or that whole side of it was, um, you know, a a significant margin higher than what we were normally seeing. Uh, that's interesting. The thing you said about like the Vespa with the, cause they do have that orange juice in it. And I've been, I used to use that stuff like earlier in my career. I haven't in the last few years, partly just because there's just no, like to my knowledge, any like double or triple blind studies to like validate whether there's anything 
going on with that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I got a healthy enough respect for the placebo effect that I have a hard time telling someone to spend five, $6 on a little packet of, of, <laughs> of it with, yeah. you know, if I don't know what's going on, if I don't see a study that says, well, this confirms, but it would be interesting to see like what, if like what you're saying is why people are noticing some benefits from that. Cause I know there is some variance from product to product and that they have their, the, their juniors, which is going to be a higher concentrate of the orange juice. And then the other ones, which are a little more diluted. Um, mm -hmm. But most people that are using that stuff are also using it in context with carbohydrate. Like they're not yeah. just racing on Vespa. They're using Vespa plus a limited amount of like gels or sports drinks. So even if they're using the concentrate, they're probably still getting that effect you're talking about. Um, the disclaimer, I'm actually a hundred percent not recommending Vespa as a product. <laughs> I wouldn't. And to be honest, I mean, when I when I read that and I found out about the the royal jelly component and all the claims that Vespa was making about the royal jelly, I, I like you, I couldn't find anything, anything mm -hmm. at all, which actually supported their claims. Like, immediately put me off on the back foot towards it. Um, not saying it's not. I'm, I'm not bad mouthing it either. I'm just saying that I yeah. couldn't find the evidence to support it. I do think it's the fructose. So I think the fact that. Um, we're providing more a TCA intermediates within the citric acid cycle means that we can generate more ATP and therefore burn more fat. Sorry, um, we can burn more fat, generate more ATP, and then have a higher performance. Um, you know, I do actually use this myself uh, with clients who um, have like stubborn body fat. So, you know, with a we might use something like a vasodilator and a, um, an adrenal kind of stimulator to try and get. Um, so catecholamines and also blood flow increased to their fatty acid um, fat stores. But then we'll actually also use uh, a small amount of um, the, a glucose or a, a fructose supplement just before training when they're doing high intensity training just to try and increase that fat, fat oxidation rates. And I, I mean, I've found really good results from using that um, myself. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, there is a performance uh, application for this, but there's also a physique slash body composition application on, on supplementing carbs strategically to increase that fat oxidation rate. Yeah, it's re it's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's uh, it definitely made me think about like kind of what is what is going on, and you know, I try to keep I try to keep it to like you know, my guide my guide or my compass as like well performance. So like, how are my workouts going? How are things? you know, going, so if I'm hitting my workouts and my nutrition is you know, where I find it works, I'm not going to, it's like you said earlier, why, why break something that's, or why fix yeah. something that's not broken kind of a yeah. scenario. Yeah. But this actually, you know, puts a little bit more of a, a spotlight on what potentially is going on with kind of my own, my mm -hmm. own experience, which is interesting. Um, Sean, any thoughts? You're going to start pounding some Royal jelly now or <laughs> You know, and I, and I remember reading about the Vespa stuff, and, and I just kind of said, I'm not really, I'm kind of skeptical. I, I'm, I'm, as much as I am on a crazy dot, I'm pretty damn skeptical about most claims. I just, you know, like I said, I, I have to see some sort of magnificent change in. Uh, <laughs> like a 10% performance increment. Yeah, or something like that, or, you know, like we're getting off medications, like I'm seeing with the, yeah. with, with the diet, and I think that's really powerful. And I think with, you know, unfortunately, most of the supplements out there, it's either placebo effect or no effect and you just wonder if you just pissed it all down the drain or you know what you spent your money on but i mean it's you know like i said there's a few things in my life where i've seen like that really made a difference and for me this this diet has been it and i just you know we're not wasps or whatever we're not flying around with little wings and 
you know, I just don't see the royal jelly being the, the thing. But, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, good on them for trying it. But, I mean, it'd be nice if, uh, you know, Peter Dufty had gotten uh, some studies done and, and some real validation behind that. But it doesn't, you know, and, and, and you, know, you referenced the FASTER study. I'm sure, I don't know if you know, Zach was actually in that study. He was one of the participants. Yeah, you mentioned it just before. So, so yeah. that was, uh, uh, you know, just kind of an interesting thing. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by X3 Bar. The X3 Bar puts a new spin on banded workouts. Historically, bands have been supplementary or inadequate for true heavy lifting. Dr. Jakish has brought a product to market that has the convenience of bands, but with the option to provide the resistance of heavy free weights. The X3 Bar has four custom bands, with the thickest one being engineered to sport over 500 pounds of resistance. The bar is designed to rotate as you move through the full range of motion. All this is anchored to the ground on a small standing plank. The design allows progressive resistance throughout the lift, which more evenly distributes the lift's difficulty through the full range of motion. Personally, I have been using this both at home and when traveling on the road, it fits nicely into a rolling duffel and takes just a few seconds to set up. Sean has been using it for both core lifts and supplementary lifts. Dr. Jakish includes a training plan along with a detailed description of how to use the X3 bar for quick full body workouts. For a deep dive into the science, check out our episode 131 with Dr. Jakish. He also has loads of information on his website, which is x3bar.com. That's the letter X number three bar.com. If interested in purchasing an X3 bar, take advantage of our promo code 50X3 for $50 off your purchase. Link and code can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Um, I want to ask you, because we had a guy named Cole Robinson on, uh, I don't know, what, two, couple, three, four months ago, Zach, you know, he's crazy, he got a screens test, says, hey, fatty, and cusses everybody, everybody. very entertaining, but... One of the concerns he had with, and he's big into fasting, I and mean, he's putting people on, you know, three-day, two-day, three-day fast pretty, pretty frequently. But when he was talking about his athletes, he felt that they could not, you know, when they were trying to get leaner, they could not train at the intensity that was required to allow them to be lean and muscular without some additional carbohydrates. And so what are your thoughts with regard to that? Well, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that particular episode. What was the problem specific? Like, so with, with the athletes, what was it that they weren't, um, they couldn't drop body fat? Was it that they were hunger? They were binging? Well, I think, I think it was in the context of somebody doing what you're doing. They're, they're really, they're really trying to lean out and, you know, and, and train hard at the same time. Cause you know, as a bodybuilder, you still gotta, you still gotta train. You just can't mm-hmm. diet and not do, you gotta do the training. And he was saying people were struggling with the training because their caloric intake was so low and they had to get carbohydrates to fuel their performance because, you know, if you put fat in there, you know, that's hard to shed body fat. And so, you know, where are, we get, where are you getting your energy from, I guess, is, is the question. Sure. So I think when, um, when you're sufficiently energy restricted, you know, your body is going to prioritize. So people, yes, I can produce enough glycogen uh, from protein to meet my performance needs for almost all levels of volume unless I'm doing something really, really stupid and intense so there isn't a i wouldn't say for the majority of people there is a no requirement realistically for carbs for performance but as we start getting really really lean um and the amount of energy my body needs to provide um not just from fat but from whatever stores it can pull from increases and the amount of i'm giving it decreases 
what we tend to find is your body will prioritize where it sends um, the, the glycogen that it can produce. You know, so it's not going to send it through to muscle glycogen. When liver glycogen is depleted, there's no way it's going to send it through to muscle glycogen as much as I'm trying to send it the signal to do that by training. You know, so the first place we're going to see um, like a evidence that we're not eating enough is in a decrease in physical performance. So that doesn't really surprise me that he was seeing that from his athletes. But eventually it'll also get to a point where we just actually can't make enough glycogen full stop, even to meet our, our liver demands. And that's when we start seeing people have, you know, really, really strong cravings, you know, um, you know, sweet cravings in particular, or like they'll eat protein. And even though they're full, they'll have this urge to keep eating and eating and eating. Um, and all of a sudden they're blowing out their energy needs and they've still got like, sorry, their energy targets. And they've still got these like right, crazy strong cravings. And that's why I think supplementing carbs can become very, um, very, very beneficial in that specific instance. Because for example, um, you know, I'm energy restricted, maybe eating slightly less fat and bumping up, you know, 30 to 50, or maybe even depending on the athlete up to hundred grams of carbohydrate in a day might be just enough um, to, to top off liver glycogen or just enough to, to put off a little bit more glycogen into muscle to enable um, someone to have that higher intensity training session for a little bit longer. You know, to put it in perspective, these, these athletes are literally running on fumes. There is nothing left in the tank and I'm, their body is fighting you every step of the way to get that little bit lower. It's a chess match trying to um, juggle all of these little variables like between... Um, the, the athletes feel how like their the emotional state, their training requirements, how their body is responding to the diet, um, all of these different variables. And like Zach, I can see you nodding. You know, you kind of know yourself. You kind of have all of these things changing as you go. Um, and uh, yeah, okay. By supplementing a small amount of carbohydrate, you do lose your your carnivore, your hundred percent carnivore chest badge. <laughs> but. On the flip side, your performance is a little bit better. Your mood is better. You're sleeping better. Um, you don't have the cravings because your liver glycogen is being topped up. You know, so there are all these little benefits um, that are coming by using carbohydrates strategically um, that I think a lot of people who have like this dogmatic view of like, no, carbs are evil um, are kind of missing out on. And again, I'll reiterate that like, this is for very lean people, people who are like wanting to push the edge of where their body is either in terms of body composition or, um, performance. So it may not necessarily be relevant to everyone, but if you are at that level, you know, abstaining just for, for belief reasons, it's a little silly. Yeah. You know do you think, do you think you'll see uh, more and more athletes are taking this uh, you know, meat heavy approach in, in, in performing at very high levels, you know, and, and I guess it's going to be classified by different sports. I mean, you know, some people will say, well, because a marathon runner can't go sub two without carbs and no, no, no other athlete can. And I say, there's a whole variety and spectrum of mm -hmm. different athletes and they have different requirements. And, you know, even what Zach does, even though he's running a hundred miles, you know, what, what Zach commented to me is I could probably run for 24 hours without carbs and it would be harder to do two, two hours, you know, at a marathon pace. It, it just depends on the intensity of the sport, the, 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 the requirements for the sport. Cause as you know, I, I do something that is highly, highly, highly glycolytic and explosive. Mm -hmm. when I compete 
and I'm using glucose surely when I'm doing this, but I'm not, I'm not requiring it in my diet because the, 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 the duration of the sport is not super long, mm -hmm. uh, you know? And so do you see that, uh, you know, we'll see, do you think you'll see uh, like really top level athletes and not that there aren't any are, there are some now already that I'm seeing that, but do you think we'll see more and more people testing this out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> I can only really, I mean, from an, um, a, um, endurance sport perspective, we can already see that, you know, for example, Zach having fantastic results and is, you know, he is an outlier to begin with in terms of like his dietary approach, but as you know, more and more people try and get results, it won't become so strange to see people following that kind of approach and having fantastic results, um, in the endurance world, you know, similarly within like the, the physique and bodybuilding world where I come from, uh, we're already seeing a lot of people who have success cutting for a duck for a show using a ketogenic diet. Um, and you go like, hang on, I can actually feel really good following this. And they're kind of trying to play with seeing how they go within a bulk. So I do certainly think um, that there is less resistance, I suppose, to accepting that maybe some of these approaches um, can be very successful. I guess what I would say as well is, is that although this is called the Human Performance Outlier podcast, the, the fact is that the vast, vast majority of people listening to this are never going to be world record holders. And uh, whilst you might get a 3 or 4% increase by having a, a carbohydrate diet according to research, if you're performing at that super, super peak level, I think the vast majority of people are never going to reap that benefit anyway. You know, and when you take up the weight of evidence versus, you know, that 3% increase in performance, but your knees ache and you have a bad relationship with food um, and you struggle to keep body fat low in the off season, um, you know, and all of these other problems that, that people are finding are relieved when they follow a, a carnivore diet. I think for the most part, you know, people are going to find that, well, you can have fantastic re um, results, a lot better than realistically most people would even hope for following this approach mm -hmm. yeah no what you said makes a ton of sense and i think like uh it's not always a goal post shifting move but a lot of times it's a goal post shifting move when the counter argument is well look at the world record marathon or look at the olympic medalists uh it's like that makes sense if our conversation is specifically about what should the say Olympic five kilometer athletes who are capable of getting on the podium, what should they be doing, mm -hmm. you know, versus the person who's going to quite literally take twice as long to finish that distance. Or yeah. if you're looking at the marathon, you know, a lot, most people are finishing in four hours, not two hours. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, it's, it, it really does kind of become an apple orange comparison. And then people get hung up, hung up sometimes like, well, it's a marathon for both people. It's like, yeah, but it's basically a different event for the person who's running for two hours and the person who's running for four hours. Mm -hmm. It'd be like, I mean, it's, sim it's more like a time trial then at that point. That's how we should maybe be looking at that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be um, disparaging when I say this, but again, most people just aren't, you know, ever going to be peak level athletes. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I think for the majority of people, adherence, both to a training program and a nutritional plan is a much, much, much higher indicator of success than, you know, whether or not you gain a 3% increase in performance following one approach or the other. For mm -hmm. me, I can follow this diet 
well, this way of eating, I should say, indefinitely. I don't feel like eating other food. I can eat as much as I want. I don't stress about intake. I don't, you know, so for me, this kind of approach is incredibly, incredibly sustainable. Um, I'm able to control my body composition. I'm able to succeed within my, my sport. Again, following an approach that feels easy for me. So for me, this is the best, best approach. I think if other people have success or they find it easier doing a different approach, that, that's fine too. Yeah, I think this is one thing that I've seen kind of unique, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's unique to this, but I, I think it's, it happens so frequently and I know it's great and I appreciate you talking about, you know, eating disordered background because there's, there's a lot of people out there suffering from that and it seems to strike women disproportionately more so than men, although there are some men that have this issue, but um, the fact that while on the surface, you know, if you say, well, I'm just going to eat a bunch of meat, it seems extremely restrictive and boring but it becomes very liberating because it liberates you from all yeah. this sort of, you know, external things that drive you to eat for non-nutritive reasons. And, you, you know, you do, you just finally find this, this level of satiation where you're like, I don't need all that, you know, sort mm -hmm. of uh, processed, you know, stuff that, that sort of fake, I don't want to call it fake nutrition, but it, it really kind of is. I mean, in some, some regards, I mean, we have an entire industry that's designed to, prey upon our vulnerabilities both physiologically and psychologically to shove more potato chips in our mouth and you know it, and it's tough and they and they and they do a good job and and they have uh they've got some smart people some smart scientists that injured you know moskowitz and his bliss point they they engineer the food so you you, you literally can't stop eating that and you, once you pop you can't stop and, and, and it does it gives you a little <laughs> bit of a high and you you just you almost become like a drug addict and yeah it, it's unfortunate. And then, you know, like if you're bulimic, you know, you, you gorge and then I, I've never had bulimia, but I've eaten so much. I've thrown up before. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't intentional. Like a food eating challenge. I remember I yeah. went down and it was like me and this other guy were going to eat these pizzas, and we had to eat like, I don't know. We, I was practicing for that. And I remember I'd eaten like two and a half large pizzas just to practice for this event. And I was like, I gotta go to the bathroom dudes. <laughs> I felt sorry for the people that had to, yeah, I felt sorry yeah. for the people that had to clean up that damn toilet because I'm not thinking. I mean, so much, it was projectile yeah. vomiting. It was disgusting. But, but yeah, but I mean, I'm saying that, uh, you know, this is very freeing, very liberating. And this is something I see over and over again. These people are just like, I finally conquered, you know, I've changed. And this is one of the biggest, this is probably the most beneficial thing of the diet. I'd, you know, you can say the protein, you know, it's high quality food. And you're not eating junk food and it's good protein and all that stuff. But probably the most beneficial thing of this diet has been changing relationships with food. And I think that is key for long-term success for any diet, quite honestly. I totally agree. And um, I suppose a lot of people who do have like that bad relationship with food, I won't, I won't say eating disorder because that, that's kind of like people who've known from, that's more like the pathological side where it's like, it's so bad that a, someone thinks that you, you're, you have a problem. But um, there are a lot of people who, in just by nature of our food system have a really bad relationship with food because you like you're teaching you've learned that if you just eat when you're hungry you're gonna get fat you know what i mean we, we develop these these negative connotations towards um well this this negative relationship between eating a, a base part of what makes us live you know to resulting in getting fat and like negative health and all of these things and we're, we're fighting ourselves I think moving through to um, especially a, a higher satiety approach. I won't, I won't call it carnivore. I won't call it low car low carb. I, I just preferably a meat based, but you know, a higher satiety diet, you know, you're creating like 
um, you're automatically improving your relationship with food. You're learning that you can actually trust what your body is telling you to do. Um, and that, that is massive. If nothing else, I'd say that is the number one benefit to um, a carnivorous approach to eating in general. In terms of like the, the blend between um, a, a physique sport and um, that kind of approach, you know, that, that carnivorous meat-based diet, um, I'd really like to reiterate to people that you can 100% succeed following this approach within a physique sport. You know, you'll talk a lot of people like, oh, you need carbs to bulk or you, you, you can't peak uh, for a, a competition without, um, without supplementing carbohydrates. And again, I, I mean, I had one of my athletes just recently win her pro car using a carnivorous approach. Um, and we even peaked her without just using protein and fat. You know what I mean? So like these, these approaches can and are working um, because they're sustainable. Yeah, and I think the, the, the comment you made earlier about not losing your menses, because I see a lot of female physique competitors see, you know, very serious hormone disruptions and they lose menstrual cycle, libido, you know, same thing would happen to men. And it's kind of interesting that that's not happening. And, that, and it might, you know, because you know, some of these women, they, they feel they do this, you know, they do two, two or three competitions and then they run screaming from that because it's like the worst experience of their life. Mm -hmm. And then they end up just like giving up on lifting and we see because they just get so burned out on it. But if we have something that's more sustainable and enjoyable and it doesn't wreck our physiology, you know, you might see more women that, that would do this longer term if they enjoy it. Not that not that it's necessary for everybody to do that, but I but I, I you know, I'm certainly in favor of all people and women included should be strength training, should should be putting on muscle. I mean, what you're doing right now is making your quality of life at eighty better. Mm -hmm. That's what Absolutely. most women don't see. I mean, they're 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 so concerned about getting into size two jeans and being a skinny, super skinny person that that they're they're compromising their health. You know, decades down the road. And I think also with um with the comp prep, it's actually not so much the comp prep itself, which is tends to be the cause of eating disorders. It's actually the the three to four week period immediately post competition, because people um they're, they're super restricted. You know, they've been moderating and moderating and moderating, and then they get down have this competition they look amazing and then all of a sudden all of the foods that they've been restricting from but were still on their menu they've just moderated the quantity so like you know chips or things like that they're all of a sudden they're on the menu and they're unrestricted and all of a sudden exactly you mentioned before this engineered food system is it is is literally hacking their satiety and they gain huge amounts of fat and they go from being super shredded to being overweight within a four-week period if that doesn't teach you to be afraid of food i don't know what will Mm. Um, you know, as opposed to, I'm seeing athletes bouncing back from um, a carnivore comp prep, you know, and all of a sudden we start eating more fat and they're having the exact same experience as I am. Or it's like, yeah, okay, I've gained fat, but I've gone from being like veins on my stomach, crazy lean to, I just have an ab outline. You know what I mean? And I, I, I'm having trouble putting on any more fat than this. And <clears throat> that's actually a very safe feeling. I don't feel... Um, I don't feel like food is a threat at the moment. I, I feel like, oh yeah, I can just eat. And yeah, okay, I've gotten back up to a normal body fat percentage, but I'm not getting overweight. That That is liberating. Yeah, I was gonna say that must be just horrible. You're trying to eat as much as you can, you can't get fat. <laughs> <laughs> People are like clamoring their fists right now in, in anger about that. <laughs> oh, come on, like you might have spent, like I spent a lot of effort getting, getting sub low body fat percentages. So I, I feel your pain, I know what it's like. Yeah, no, I mean, I find the same thing when I, when I, uh, 
you know, I can eat, you know, six pounds plus a day and, and, and really not put on much body fat at all. I mean, it's, you know, there's like a point where it's just like, I'm stuffed and I can't eat anymore and it's tough. And, you know, like I said, when I was back in the days when I was a really big guy, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 110 kilos. I was about 130 kilos at one point. Wow, geez. Big dude. <laughs> maybe, even, maybe even 135 at one point. Yeah. I was over 300 pounds. And, and um, I was eating constantly and constantly past the point of satiety. And it, it was a job. And you see some of these big pro bodybuilders, the same thing, and strongman competitors. They are, I mean, it's not even fun. I mean, you're just, you're just shoveling food in your mouth to do that. And it's just, it's just you know, it's, it's miserable, quite honestly. I mean, um, <laughs> so one of the things that, I do when I'm bulking versus cutting is I change my meal frequency oh, and I do that by controlling how much I eat at any particular meal. So when I'm trying to gain weight. What I'm, what I do is I eat until I'm no longer hungry because if I do that, then I know I'm going to be hungry again in about three to five hours. Right. Um, which means that I can have, I have another opportunity to try and trigger a muscle protein synthesis event. You know, I want to get past that muscle fall effect that Lane Norton investigated for his PhD um, so I can try and re-trigger it again, but where I'm, I'm cutting, I, I tend to prefer to have like these big meals very infrequently, like maybe one or two meals a day. I'll wait until I get hungry, hungry, like with a capital H, um, have a big meal until I'm full and satisfied. And then I won't eat again for another eight to, to 10, maybe even 12 hours, or maybe I'll just have that one meal in a day, depending on what time that was. Um, and it's interesting because if I, if I was to do that on any other diet, I was like, yep, I have this big meal around lunchtime. I blow my calories. That's it. I'm done. You know what I mean? I have not made progress that day versus with this approach. That's actually how I'm ensuring I get progress. It's, it's interesting how, you know, playing with your society has that kind of effect. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, again, back to the, the episode we had with Don Lehman, uh, if you haven't listened to it, I think it's a great episode, but we talk about, you know, triggering uh, MPS, mul mul uh, muscle protein synthesis via, you know, mTOR stimulation via leucine. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems to run about every three to four hours that you can, you can, you can pull that trigger. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, any more frequently is probably wasting time and any less frequently, you're not as efficient. And so, you know, when we see people trying to maximize muscle growth as in, as in, as a bodybuilder trying to bulk, you've got to, you've got to ramp up your frequency relative to what your natural appetite would be. Cause my natural appetite on this diet is twice a day. Just like you said, I mean, I'll stuff myself sometime early in the day and I'll stuff myself once later in the day. And, and that's yeah. kind of, and it varies. Sometimes it's breakfast, sometimes it's lunch. Uh, once in a while it's a one, it's a one meal a day, but that's pretty rare for me. Quite honestly, I don't like, I don't like doing that. I know there's some people that really want to do the OMAD. That for me, that means I got to shove, you know, four or five pounds, pounds in one day. Yeah, one, one second. I did, did this. I remember when Cole was on and we were talking about it and I was like, well, I'll do a 48 hour fast just for the hell of it, but I'm going to eat so I can sustain myself. And I had to put down eight pounds of food. And Jesus. I mean, this was like, this was like max, max capacity type of thing. And I just went down and I was like, I got to, I normally after meat, I can, I can eat a couple pounds of meat and I'm ready to go run and jump. But I mean, I, I ate eight pounds and I was like, I got ready to pass out. out. <laughs> I was laying there, man. I just, this is one of the few times I'm laying there. Like, like for two or three hours, I was just, you know, my girlfriend came checked on me. She goes, you look bad. <laughs> You're just laying <laughs> on the couch under the air con, like trying not to die from the protein sweats. Right. Yeah. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But, um, what was I going to ask you about? Uh, yeah. I mean, you talked earlier about the protein and, you know, we're spilling, you know, I think when we get really high on a protein, yeah, we, we, we end up, urine, you know, pissing some of that off, you know, eventually, I mean, with a urea or, or even some, some amino acids. Um, um, 
you when you uh, went super high protein, did you check anything lab wise? Are you a lab checker person that's checking renal function or any of that stuff, or not really? Uh, so I've got a blood test. I actually just recently, like as in yesterday, posted up a photo of a blood test that I done um, whilst on a really high protein kick, um, and I had eleven point one millimoles of urea in the blood test, which I, I don't know what that converts across into freedom units, but um, it's high, but not excessive for the, I don't know, it looks like Sean's doing his little calculator thing now, but um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, of course, like if you're eating that much protein, you're going to have more urea, but, you know, people talk about having, you know, like the getting the shakes or, uh, you know, they're feeling terrible and they need to lay down because they're having like all of this protein. And like, to be honest with you, I've never experienced it. I honestly think it's, as you said before, Zach, a, a healthy respect for the placebo effect. If I tell you that you're going to feel shaky and have low energy and, you know, hypoglycemic because you're having lots of protein, then you're probably going to have those results. I mean, I haven't, but um, <clears throat> also really interesting, you mentioned before about eating high protein in a deficit. Um, I actually did a whole bunch of research. I'm holding up a paper now. I don't know if you can see it. I know it's backwards. Um, on, Before you jump into that, I want to give you your conversion for that. So it's about 30 on the units we would use, which would be mildly elevated. And I see that all the time, you know, a little mild elevation. And I talk to people about, uh, you know, particularly if their GFR looks like it's trending down, get a cystatin C because that will, that will take, that'll take the influence of protein off creatine off the, off the calculation because it's a lot of people, a lot of physicians, in fact, they don't know, they'll see somebody with an elevated BUN and creatinine and assume that their 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 kidney function is is compromised when a, a mm -hmm. simple test called cystatin C would take that protein confounder out of the equation. All right, back to your study, sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. And I'm just out of interest about that as well. I mean, I was fasted at the time and dehydrated. So of course, you know, the concentrations, if I'm dehydrated, are going to appear higher in serum. <clears throat> but um, I, I actually looked at um, energy density, in particular in the context of uh, dieting. And what was really interesting is that, you know, everyone talks about how protein is the most satiating as a macronutrient. Um, and believe it or not, there's actually a lot of research into this if you actually start digging in. Most of it came out about the late 90s. But there was one particular research paper, and I'll, um, I'll give you the, the name and link to it later if you want to include it in like the, the description for the, the podcast. But um, essentially what they looked at was they were trying to work out why lower energy density diets actually were more satiating. Now, this is really interesting because energy density is an argument that is used predominantly for veganism, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, people are like, well, you know, plants are low energy density, therefore you should eat plants because then you'll eat less energy. And that's kind of true to an extent. But what we actually find is that... Um, the low energy density that comes from uh, a plant-based diet is only true if you consider the water and the fiber content um, as offsetting energy density in the food. In reality, what we actually find is that those two components don't actually result in increased satiety. So if you lower your energy density in terms of um, just eating lots of plant food, people have this urge to continue to keep eating um, and increase their energy intake in order to compensate. Uh, I mean, eventually you get to a point where you just can't eat any more fiber because you will actually explode um, because you're not a ruminant. But um, we're actually finding that a high fiber diet um, is only correlated with lower energy intake, not so much the cause of it. What's also really interesting is in the same research study, 
they uh, identified that it wasn't the high protein content of protein foods that were satiating. It was actually the lack of fat, uh, correction, the lack of fat and carbohydrates. So if you lower the energy, if you increase the protein content of your food, it's not actually any more satiating. The, um, what is more satiating is actually reducing your fat and carbohydrates in general, which by necessity means that a higher portion, like a higher percentage of your diet is coming from protein. Does that, does that make sense? So it's, what we're seeing is that people um, who are eating a higher protein diet are eating less energy, but it's not because they're, they're targeting protein specifically, it's because they're avoiding fat and carbohydrates. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense from a from an obvious perspective. It's intuitively doesn't make you know it doesn't you know make as much sense because you say, well, if I'm eating more energy, what you're saying is eating energy makes us hungry for more energy, basically at some point. You know, if if I'm if I'm you know if I'm if I'm eating carbs and I want to eat more carbs, and there, I mean, like I said, Kevin Hall's recent study looking at ultra processed food, which is often a combination of fat and carbs together, shows that those people spontaneously eat an extra, I don't know what it was, six hundred calories a day or something like that. So there may be something to that that, uh, you know, once your body gets a taste of a little energy and wants more, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, before I mentioned that, um, you know, I'm eating about the same quantity of food per day on a high fat approach than what I was eating on a, on a low fat approach. Um, so in reality, I'm actually probably eating about the same amount of protein, but I'm adding in a lot more fat. So the amount of calories that I'm eating per day have increased rather substantially. It's almost doubled, actually. So um, by not abstaining from fat, the amount of energy that I'm eating is drastically increased, but my food quantity has remained about the same, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, people who are energy restricted and they're trying to lose weight, they keep talking like, I'll just eat protein, I'll eat protein, I'll eat protein. And you see them like eating egg whites and they're eating tuna and they're eating all of these like very low palatability protein sources um, in an effort to reduce protein, uh, sorry, reduce energy intake what we're finding is that um, they end up just eating more energy from protein because it's not the protein itself that is satiating. It's the lack of energy from fat or carbohydrates. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, like I said, it seems like, uh, you know, steak makes the answer work. <laughs> Sorry, what was that last bit? I couldn't hear you. No, I said it sounds like it just means the answer is steak works better than lean, skinny chicken breasts and stuff like that because uh, <laughs> for, for whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know that we fully understand this all the way yet. But um, <laughs> well, let me uh, just because I unfortunately have to have to go here. I know this has been a wonderful conversation. Can you tell people how to find you, how to find more information about you, sure. um, where you are on social media and, and that sort of stuff? So um, I'm predominantly on uh, Twitter as two minute keto. So two min underscore keto. I'm also on um, Facebook predominantly. So I'm in three groups. One is called Keto Alpha, um, which I can give you a link to, as well as another group called uh, Nutrient Keto. And that's just more about um, using a ketogenic nutrient dense approach to body composition. Uh, and the final one is I'm also administrator on ketogenic bodybuilding. So that's really just talking about um, how to succeed in a physique sport using a ketogenic approach. Awesome. Well, Ella, thank you so much for taking time out to come on the show. I will link the, your, your social media stuff to the show notes. And then if you want to send over that study link, I'll put that in there as well. But 
thanks a bunch for taking the time out to come on. And I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Perfect. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate having you. Appreciate it. All. Thank you very much. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.